I'd like to welcome everybody here today to the second, I believe, in our Mediating Change workshops. This one is entitled An Inconvenient Tweet, hosted by Open Space. Um, today, what we're focusing on is how social and other online media platforms, blogging, Storify, Facebook, how these platforms have altered the way that we're communicating, engaging and debating climate change issues, climate change policy. And do we have, I guess the question is, more openness or do we have more confusion? Do we have um, a honing in on key ideas or are ideas being diluted by the use of this social media? And so to discuss these issues, we've got five people on our platform today. Uh, Tamsin Edwards is an Earth System Modeler from Bristol, School of Geographical Sciences. Barry Woods is a member of the public, blogging and tweeting on the policies, politics, economics and science of climate change, both man-made and natural. Uh, Warren Pierce is our research fellow at the University of Nottingham on the Making Science Public Program. Mark Brandon, an, a polar oceanographer in the Department of Science at the OU. And Richard Holloman is our OU champion for public engagement with research. Uh, appropriately, all the speakers have Twitter feeds and or blogs and you can uh, connect to them via the, the website. I should say that we're also um, conducting a live feed, so if you're watching this at the moment uh, on the OU uh, web space, you'll be able to follow uh, this on hash OU tweet. That's correct. Correct me if I'm wrong. OU tweet, as well as through the individual panellists' uh, uh, Twitter feeds as well. We're going to kick off with each panellist having five minutes to speak or to outline their initial thoughts on the topic, and then we'll open it up to uh, the audience for discussion. Again, just to be aware uh, for the audience that we are recording this as well as a live feed, so if that's okay with you, um, it would be great if you could also just say, state who you are and uh, your affiliation. Uh, and I would also ask for the sake of the recording if we could turn our phones off or onto silent as well. That would be great. Uh, so we'll start with Tamsin to kick us off. Thank you. Um, I could talk about this topic for a long time, um, but I'll focus, I think, on my own um, uh, approach and my own experiences, um, both positive and negative. <clears throat> so I talk to my particular focus is talking to climate sceptics on Twitter and also through my blog. Um, I believe the reason I do this really is because I believe in open access science. Um, we're publicly funded. I think it's better for the science to be open. I think it's better for public understanding of what the scientific process is. So my approach is to talk to the public like I do with my colleagues. So it means you end up with quite a lot of nuance, um, quite a lot of critique, um, examining weaknesses in my own work and other people's. My blog is called All Models Are Wrong. Um, so I treat it, in a sense, like a discussion section of a paper uh, talking about the robustness of methods and, and inferences. And this is particularly easy because quite a lot of the sceptics I talk to are academics from other fields. In fact, a couple turned up at my talk here last night um, by the Institute of Physics, hosted by the Institute of Physics. Um, the other thing I talk about, I suppose, is the communication of climate science in a slightly meta way. Uh, so kind of having an ongoing conversation about approaches to, to climate scepticism. Um, and some people say that the, these two approaches basically are, are quite counterproductive, um, particularly the, the criticism of other um, scientific work, <coughs> which is described as fodder for sceptics. And um, also I've, I've um, expressed an opinion about sticking to the science and scientific expertise, which has been interpreted as um, telling climate scientists to shut up. And um, I, I just wanted to sort of... I've got... 
I suppose, anecdotal evidence, um, well, both against, for and against what I do. And I just wanted to sort of uh, give a couple of quotes that focus on that transformation aspect. Um, I was a bit sort of down about all of this, I suppose, uh, getting a bit battered in the online world. And the, uh, Richard Toll, the economist, um, sent me a direct message saying, focus on things that endure. You've convinced UK climate sceptics that climate scientists are not all evil or dumb. So that is what matters. Um, David Rose at the Daily Mail, Mail on Sunday, who's written all sorts of um, uh, rather controversial, shall we say, articles about climate science results. Um, uh, again, excuse, I will, I will counter these with some antis, but um, excuse the sort of self-praise. But, you know, he says, you're polite, respectful, and so, for, so far more likely to influence someone. Um, I take you seriously on any topic. By being open and honest, you've made me think that dogma and abuse are just as odious expressed by sceptics. Um, Paul Matthews, a professor of maths at uh, Nottingham, who's a sceptic, said if most climate scientists were like Tamsin, there'd be hardly any sceptics. Um, on the other hand, some people, a prominent scientist in the USA, um, called me disappointingly naive and misguided, um, has talked about me sort of trying to raise my profile with a, with a Twitter debate. Um, someone uh, commented on his Facebook page, if one, fi- if one finds oneself applauded by the contrarians, it may be time to re-examine one's views, if not one's life. <laughs> um, uh, and he and the scientist liked that comment. Um, um, and I've had articles, you know, headlined um, blog posts, The Trouble with Tamsin, That Girl Needs to Grow Up. Uh, and there's one member of the public um, who's... You just uh, call me um, intellectually dishonest, a bit dim, a condescending ass, a pathetic hypocrite, and an arrogant fool. That was a nice step, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, And uh, I suppose I, I partly want to sort of say I think more scientists should get out there and do this, so perhaps not telling it that well. Um, <laughs> because I think that if, I've, if I have won any sort of trust as a scientist and a communicator, um, it's easy for people to then say, ah, but you're, you're, the, you're the one on their own, you're a whistleblower, you're, a, you're different from the rest. And what we need to do is show that I'm not different from the rest. And all climate scientists, you know, if you, if you flooded the online market with postdocs, lecturers, professors, you know, the vast majority would be just the same. And, and there are, you know, people are asking for this, a couple of sceptics. I wish more were willing to come out of the academy and interact. You know, would that more of your colleagues were as forthcoming? Um, so I guess I, I, that's, that's basically it. I just want to sort of vouch for uh, Barry Woods, who's, I think, speaking next, um, who was kind of an early um, influence for me in all that. He's always been... He phoned me up and was sort of ever so courteous, genuine belief in the, the robustness of science, the importance of civility, actually, and respect, um, and not name-calling, um, and just getting the science absolutely precise and, and, and standing up to mistakes where we make them. Um, so I, I guess that's all I say. Uh, so that's great. Thanks, Tamsin. Let's over to Barry. Okay, we've got some slides. Um, uh, that's me. That's not me. Oh, Good thing. <coughs> sorry. Good thing I didn't use that. I was thinking. <laughs> Which one are you, Barry? Um, it's got my name on the front one. Inconvenient tweet. That, that's a sunrise. Yeah. Well, we know who I am. Um, who I blog. And we go. Right. Um, like Tamsin said, there's lots of people out there thinks. All climate science are evil, dumb, stupid. Well, the public just sees a media version of climate science. They might see a few talking heads, they don't know many climate scientists. <coughs> and, you know, for my, you know, I've only been involved, interested in the sort of climate debate, what it is, for like, like four years. 
Um, you know, I've got friends that are climate scientists. I've got friends that are Green Party environmentalists. Um, so I'm interested. Well, they are not evil green socialists trying to take over the world, or climate scientists aren't dumb. You know, I, I think I was halfway, about six months into being interested in realizing one of my of these climate get emails. Well, a friend of mine's got hundreds of them. You know, it's the media version of climate science is not climate science. So this is where you know, I, I perceive Tamsin and Warren Mark as scientists because they want to talk and be accurate about the science. That's important to them. I've also seen a lot of pressure um, giving ammunition for the sceptics or spreading doubt by them being accurate about the science. Um, pops the next slide. Um, so when I saw this inconvenient tweet, you know, I'm here today because I saw it on Twitter, so obviously works social media-wise at Tamsin's. I thought, well, I've seen some research that Warren had done. And I thought, well, invite Warren onto the panel, because you know, he should, he's been doing research in the area, lots of contribute. Can I come? I ended up on the panel rather than there asking questions. So, you know, you know, so I now have to sort of, sort of sit here and you know, ask questions from this side rather than the other side. Um, but, you know, inconvenient tweet. Inconvenient for whom? Why is it inconvenient? Is it good or bad or both? You know, if Townsend has an inconvenient blog name as far as one quite high-profile American scientist thought, and the reason it was wrong is because skeptics liked it. Well, a lot of UK scientists liked it. Um, and it's a long story. If we go back, uh, go back to the previous slide for a second. You know, I used to blog as Real Climate Gate, and I changed my name because you know, the very people I wanted to talk to were the people right on the other side, supposedly. You know, and see, well, we actually probably agree about an awful lot, but it's just so polarised. I think, particularly because the American side of things, it's so polarised there. You know, you're anti science, or, you know, it's like, okay, so 50% of American public vote Democrat, 50% vote Republican. You know, there's two extreme groups calling each other name you know, Congress, but most of the public that vote Democrat, Republican, none of them are anti science. They've got jobs in science, they've got PhDs, and it's just silly. So I'm trying to talk to than the people right on the side. So I changed my blog then because a lot of people thought it was funny, but obviously it's a, it's a real climate website. So, well, I just put some people off, so I changed it. Um, just blogged it myself. Got up with a, a blog named Unsettled Climate because it's nicely ambiguous. People pop back to the side. So who is it inconvenient for? If it's inconvenient for policy or messaging, if you're being accurate about science, that's a very dangerous place to go down, you know. It's spreading doubt. It's, it's on accuracy of science. Well, in the media, that's not a good place to be. Um, so, lots of questions there. Next one, please. But for you know, scientists that want to engage, there's lots of good reasons. Um, probably your own peer group. I mean, we would be here today on net because it's about Twitter. Um, wider groups. You know, in terms of mentioned, you know, talking to other academics, interesting debates, startup, outreach. I hate the word. Um, it sounds comes across as patronising. Uh, public communication would be better. That's a two-way process. Why you know, doing it? to influence the public? In what way? About policy or science? Uh, we get onto the word advocacy, which I'm sure we'll be talking about. And you know, I'm very much an advocate for science, but too often science gets mixed up as policy. It's used interchangeably. I think Chris Rapley's spoken about this. So when we talk about science, a lot of times we talk about policy. It's hopelessly mixed up. Um, and, well, as we get sociable, you know, I, I know Warren, I know Tamsin, I know Mark. 
you know, I know when I see them on Twitter, I know their tone. Mm. It, 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 140 characters. You can get a lot wrong. I spent a decade with um, IT team, you know, Dutch English guy, Japanese English guy, American English guy, a couple of German guys, you know, our team, and all emailing each other. You know, and we, most of the problems are between the American English speakers and the English English speakers. Because everybody else is careful because it's a second language. So talk to each other, meet people, you know, find out what to agree on, rather than you know, the got years. Um, next one, please. There's lots of reasons which terms in Bobby is highlighted on Moxie. Um, Ron's had a similar experience. I mean, called one very much climate concern blog. A few name calling the blog. Bozo wasn't it? On one of them, and a few others. And that was for daring to have a guess article and making science public blog by you know, a climate skeptic. And I think the response he got was, I saw on Twitter again, why are you doing this? And lots of people asking this person, why are you doing this one? And Greenpeace, you know, why are you bothering worrying about this? You know, just a sceptic. Because of where it is. It's on the university blog. So therefore, it had to be taken down, you know, attacked. But it's a sceptic. They're beneath the payoff. Now, I'm not a sceptic. I'm a member of the public. I've been shoved in this thing. I'm not sceptical of climate science. You know, you could be thinking it's six degrees warming, tipping point around the horizon, but you might think wind farms are a dumb idea, or solar's not great in the UK, or nuclear is good. You know, James Hansen, you know, if you, you know, think renewables and are going to solve the energy crisis, you might as well believe in a tooth fairy. Needs to bunny. I'm sure you're going to that quote up. So, it's polarizing to yes, no. Do you believe in climate change? Yes, no. Well, I can think of about 20 different definitions of climate change. Unless everyone's talking about the same definition, you're going to spend years arguing. Um, I've got down other reasons. Inability to type straight, so... <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's me on Twitter. Too busy, space, small smartphone. Too impatient. I've got three kids, a life, a job. You know, Everyone here is probably work today. It's a day off work. Childcare, travelling. It's this hassle for me. You know, It's not what I normally do. Can we pop on the next one? I'm just going to finish so lots of questions to ask people here watching this. You know, is it inconvenient? Why is it? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it honing in or focusing? Well, it's both. It's just like a you know, newspaper. It's good, there's bad. It's both. You deal with it. Um, what was the next one? And there we go. I mean, what is everyone's opinion here? That's great. Thanks, okay. Ray. Thank you. And over to Warren. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, yeah, do you want to... Um, yes. <coughs> thank you. Which one are you on, Alan? Uh, I'm on the right, top right. That's it. Okay, uh, thanks for inviting me, everyone. I'm Joe. Um, yeah, I've got... Okay, so I've got... A, a, I've just done a few slides here, which I'm not going to show all of them, because, um, but I thought it might be useful to um, just share a little bit of our research uh, findings with you on a paper we've just... Um, well, it's just under revision at the moment. Uh, um, sorry, could you go back to the... Thank you. Um, uh, with uh, Brigitte Neerlich, who's here, and a couple of uh, colleagues from uh, VU in uh, Amsterdam, uh, Kim Holmberg and Ina Helston. We've done um, some work looking at uh, Twitter use um, around the time of the IPCC uh, report coming out uh, at the end of September last year. And really just to 
Um, so, like Barry and Tamsin and Mark, kind of, uh, I've been involved um, to some ex- extent and also observed um, social media communications um, between various people, people ostensibly on with similar opinions, people with different opinions, but really want to try and get some data to try and back up some of the kind of the hunches we had, I guess, and um, see if they were right or wrong. And um, very conveniently, this IPCC report, which is you know, in the climate change soap opera, this is the biggest, uh, this is the biggest uh, event going. It only comes every five or six years. This was a, um, a, a, a significant event. Um, okay, do you want to... Thank you. Do you want to move on? Okay, so very quickly. Um, um, yeah, so we collected some tweets uh, last couple of weeks, September and start of October. Uh, and <coughs> this was all the tweets uh, with IPCC in the tweet. Uh, and there were over 150,000 tweets, <coughs> which is quite a significant number. Um, we uh, stripped out all the ones uh, which were uh, retweets uh, uh, with RT and Veer in, which basically just got rid of uh, tweets which were just basically link sharing, so things that came directly from, like, Guardian website or whatever. So we were really trying to focus on ones where people were trying to get connections with other people. And that left us about 60,000. And we studied these tweets in two ways. So we looked at the hashtags that people were using. Uh, and this was really a way of trying to um, see what issues people were um, connecting to climate change in the IPCC. <coughs> and we also looked at the conversational connections between people or between users. Because obviously sometimes these users are not just people. They may be organisations. Um, and because I haven't got much time, I'm going to go uh, straight to the next slide, which uh, is conclusions. Uh, and then I will show you a little bit of uh, data in a minute okay so what I want to say so this is quite a typical uh, thing you hear in the climate change uh, debate is uh, a problem of echo chambers okay Um, and this is a quite pejorative term I think and really what an echo chamber is is really just people you're talking to people who share a lot of the same assumptions and beliefs and opinions and this is what we generally tend to do as normal human beings um, but if you do want to call them echo chambers, what we saw was that um, once we'd kind of uh, coded people, if you like, or, or sorted users into either being supportive broadly or unsupportive of the IPCC or neutral, in those three groups, people tended to talk to each other far more than they talked to other groups. But what we did see, interestingly, which I'll show you in a moment, is that we had... Um, in the UK, we had um, in UK users we had much more interaction between different groups, which I'll show you a little map of in a minute, which is quite um, instructive, I think. And um, a couple of other things is that we noticed in Australia, this was just after the Australian election, very very uh, vibrant um, discussion about it. In fact, there were more tweets connecting it to Australia than there were to America, which were, bear in mind, the um, relative populations. It's quite a surprising finding, I think. But climate change policy, very hot issue in Australia. Um, okay, so I think we better just scoot on a couple of uh, slides. Uh, so let's scoot on to the next one, please. Um, okay, very briefly, um, just to give you an idea of who was tweeting. So what you can see are bolded the interesting ones. So we've got um, private individuals here, uh, so people like Barry, um, or individual bloggers. Um, they were a, a large proportion. So if you add those two numbers together, that's more than half the people who were involved 
in the kind of the top, the most active tweeters, were individuals. So these are not journalists talking to each other or government people. These are just members of the public. And these can range from being people with a professional involvement um, to people who are kind of, you know, have an amateur interest. Um, and something else you will see there, just on the right-hand side, so you can see that basically almost half the Twitter users involved we coded as supportive, um, and a quarter as unsupportive. So, you know, there's a reasonable amount in both camps, but certainly far more in the supportive than the unsupportive. Um, do you want to move on to the next mm-hmm. one? Thank you. Okay, here's our uh, pretty map. Um, so really, we just found uh, three communities. So all these, all these uh, spots here, uh, nodes, are Twitter users. And the size of the node is relative to how many connections they had. So how many people they were tweeting and how many people were tweeting them. And uh, the size of the arrows are, are the size of connections going to particular users. Um, so that's very pretty. But if we uh, break that down on the next slide, I can show you three different... Um, what these three different communities, they're all quite different in their characteristics. Yes, please. I already oh. have. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, the next one. Um, and this, sorry, shows it by, um, this shows you the intermingling between um, supportive, unsupportive, and neutral. So the purple people on here are unsupportive, or skeptics, if you like. Uh, the red are in the pro camp, supportive. And greens are um, neutral. And uh, next slide, please. So in the top right of that diagram, we had uh, this Australian. So particularly on the right here, these are almost all Australian users. Um, and they talked to each other quite a lot, and they were their own little distinct community. And they didn't have that much uh, interconnection with people outside of Australia in comparison <coughs> to inside. And as you can see, they, they do talk to each other, but not a huge amount. And there aren't a lot of people in this community. You know, there's only kind of a couple of dozen here who are really active. Um, next slide, and just to uh, yeah, and just to reiterate what I said earlier, this, you know, these are some of the hashtags. And there's a lot of hashtags here. So there's 2,000 Australian <coughs> hashtag tweets, and that was about twice as many as there were American ones. Um, and some typical examples here about global warming scam. And, uh, and uh, then the one above is very much pro, kind of uh, giving the Australian, your Australian Prime Minister a, a dig. But, yeah, on both sides, it's quite an almost American kind of polarised debate, if you like. Um, next slide, please. OK, well, now I'll, just do, I'll just do two more here. So there was two kind of mainly UK communities. So this one, which was kind of the left of the original diagram, this is mostly supportive. Um, so there's a couple of purples who are the sceptics. Um, but there's a lot of red. And these are quite typically kind of... Um, quite a lot of these are journalists and NGO users in here who talk to each other a little bit but the connections are quite um, sparse compared to the next one. And this is, I think, the most, by far the most interesting one. So these are almost all UK, a few European, hardly any American uh, users in here, and very, very uh, dense, busy connections. You can see this, is a, this gives you a very different picture to the other two, um, the other two uh, networks that we saw. So... My, my kind of my, my find my initial finding from this paper really just to just to wrap up is that although if you look at the whole of Twitter the tweets as I say people tend to stick together uh, in this kind of birds of a feather flock together or echo chambers or however you want to describe it but what seems to be going on in this mainly UK um, network is that there's far more interconnection uh, between people ostensibly of different views. Um, I appreciate that we've coded them into supportive and unsupportive, which is a very kind of blunt 
blunt typology, but uh, I think we kind of have to start somewhere. So what we're looking to do in the future, which I think we can only do kind of actually by speaking to some of these people in person, um, is to find out what is going on here and what is driving this, and if it really is as it appears. Um, and then we're also going to be looking at um, Twitter use on the next two working groups as well to see if there's the same level of interest. And I suspect the answer to that is going to be uh, no. But I'll be interested to see uh, how they compare. Sorry, that was a bit long. That's all right. Thank you. Off. I'll let you off because you use the euphemism vibrant to describe Australian communication on climate change. <laughs> it's usually rough and ready and sweary is the usual before, form of communication. Before the water shed, so I use the yeah. vibrant. <laughs> Um, okay, great. Thanks, Warren. Over to Mark. <coughs> Just one overhead from me, you'll be pleased to know. Um, uh, part of the conversation today was about uh, other forms of social media as well. And um, well, colleagues like Tamsin uh, are prepared to uh, engage in uh, territory, as you've already heard, that um, has put a, in a position of being shot from both sides, um, to put it bluntly. But I think I wanted to make the point uh, that we often hear scientists, you know, you scientists don't get out and talk enough. You don't talk to people. You don't communicate. You're not trying. You need to work harder. And actually, I, I don't see that as a, as, a, as a naive, optimistic scientist working in a climate area. I think we do try very hard. So my overhead has just three examples of that. And there's a lot of this sort of stuff going on. And uh, the reason I picked these three is just because they're different, but they're ways that lots of climate scientists are communicating right now. And the picture on the left is from Ed Hawkins at the uh, 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 University of Reading. And he has a webpage called Open Lab Book. And in that webpage, he's doing research level... It, it's, it's a lab book. He's doing you know, research climate science publicly. Every now and then he, t he comes up with something interesting. It gets picked up on Twitter. And the reason I put that particular plot there um, is because that was uh, an earlier version of that was picked up by the Daily Mail uh, and, uh, uh, I believe, manipulated slightly uh, to look a bit different uh, and uncredited, which is why if you squint really closely, you'll see in grey there, that one's got figure created by Ed Hawking's University of Reading. But the point I'm making there is that people are getting out and trying really hard and this stuff is being picked up live and this is before it's getting published in journals. And what that's actually showing is that the climate model is still within the, the, the current temperature rise uh, 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 that we've observed on the planet is still within the envelope that we would expect from climate science, uh, from, from uh, IPCC class models. The one on the right is from Bethan Davis at Aberystwyth University. Now, Bethan runs a website called Antarctic Glaciers, uh, and she's on Twitter as well, very active. And that's, uh, what she's done is, is, instead of just leaving her science, published science, to journals, she's written a fantastically brilliant webpage explaining the science behind the paper, putting it into public outreach terms, using the figures from the paper. And I think this is increasingly going to become more the way we do it. Younger scientists are doing this now. Get a blog, get yourself an impact, open access, that sort of thing. If you can't publish in an open access journal, get your stuff online like that. And, and lots more uh, climate scientists are picking that up. And the third example I've got across the bottom is uh, the barometer pod. And the reason I've got that one up is because uh, I think they're great. They, 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 the University of Manchester uh, Atmospheric uh, Group, the three that I know are Will Morgan, Jenny Muller, uh, and Sam Ellingworth, but there are eight listed on the website. They run this uh, uh, blog uh, and podcast 
and they're interviewing climate scientists all the time. They go to conferences, and they're producing the stuff on this podcast. Um, that um, if you wanted to be aggressive about the failings of climate science, you would listen to it. I recommend because they're quite happy talking about the problems with climate models, the problems with representing particular features of the climate in our understanding and how we develop them and where they fall short. So it's, it's everything from general public through to research level. But if you wanted to find out where the flaws were, I recommend you listen to that. But the reason for highlighting it here is making the point people are talking in public and we are engaging. And, okay, so there's a generational thing going on. Different colleagues have picked up different areas of social media. But I think that the younger generation is showing uh, us people uh, how to do it. And it's communication with people like Barry. That have, I've learned a lot from Barry about how to engage with people and, and how, uh, yeah, 140 characters are so dangerous. Uh, you know, it's an old joke. You know, sarcasm doesn't work online. It comes across as bitter. And never try irony. Uh, but it took me a while to figure that out. But now I have. And that's my one overhead. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Mark. And now finally we have Richard Holliman. Yes. Um, so, yeah. It's actually very interesting to hear the four speakers, so I'm in the lucky position of having heard them all mm. speak, so I can kind of just maybe reflect <coughs> on a couple of things they've said. I mean, it, I think certainly this is a, obviously a very disruptive... It's a very disruptive form, I mean, in the sense that... Um, we are working with the limitations of those 140 characters, which I think Barry pointed out quite nicely, just thinking about, okay, A, how do you represent yourself as an individual? So you can change your Twitter name because you think that makes a difference. No, it's, it's a very specific example, I think. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's about how you present yourself as an academic mm-hmm. content, as, a, as an identity within this debate, either as a citizen or as, a, as an academic. It's a very specific reason for that. It's okay. not a general one. But the, the other issue then is around, say, the limitation of the form, which I think Paul often I think um, Mark kind of reinforced, if you like. So the, the disruptive part of this, is, I think, is we're now starting to look more systematically at different different ways of actually engaging and communicating research. I mean, research, if we're lucky as researchers, is disruptive because we find new things and hopefully people take notice of it. So in climate science, this makes a difference in other areas of academic knowledge and I work right across the OU, people are desperate for, for some attention. <laughs> yeah, so you, you know, it's interesting, you know, you're, you're sitting there thinking, God, I want less of this, do you know what I mean? People are really grumpy about that. And they're saying, please be grumpy about it. So there's, there's that kind of tension there. And, and to what degree with, with Townsend, some of that actually is, is just making that academic debate, that academic grumpiness more visible. <laughs> Academics have always been grumpy about each other. We're always rude about each other's work, do you know what I mean? But now we can put it on Twitter and it's visible. I mean, so some of this is actually not necessarily changing. Maybe it's actually the degree, the volume, if you like, has been switched up. If I can use that, that, uh, that term. And the other one is, which I thought was really nice from, uh, from Warren's presentation, was around the echo chain, the, the idea of the echo chamber, and how we can actually create a space where actually we can properly engage with each other rather than just throw rocks. And that, that's actually crucially what it's about at the end of the day, I think. It's about getting people to engage. And this is a, this is a digital form, but ultimately this is all about people. And if you can create a space for where people can actually engage in a meaningful way, that's the difference. So I have this role within the OU of being this champion for public engagement research, and part of what I'm trying to do is to find ways that we can do that. So I was down in Exeter um, last week where we were talking about exactly this. So could we, could we launch a journal 
you call it a journal, is one of the kinds of things. Do we just, just, can we launch some kind of space where people can actually engage with academic research in a meaningful way? Which means everybody gets some kind of voice within this debate, but you retain the kind of quality stamp around review, you know, so you have some space where the academic paper can come in, but you have to have some space where people can genuinely have a voice, and how do you support people in having those voices in that kind of academic debate? In a way, we're kind of we're dealing with a relatively new form and then trying to find ways of establishing norms and conventions which actually allow us to be more civil. Civility was one of the things you, you raised, you mean, and which allow us to have fun with this as well at the end of the day. Some of this stuff can actually be fun. And that's, that's the real challenge, I think, actually, in this whole discussion today, I think, is actually what we're trying to do is find more meaningful ways of engaging with each other. I won't use my slides. Okay. <laughs> great. Thanks, Richard. Uh, so, a great beginning from our five speakers, raising some really interesting ideas there, and I think uh, Richard summed it up quite nicely. I mean, how do we make these, these platforms, the social media, more meaningful in terms of engaging with the public, engaging with each other, uh, engaging with policy debates as well? So, over to the audience, if people have comments on, this, on what the speakers have had to say or perhaps your own experiences using social media as well. And everybody's being shy because they're so used to tweeting. You can tweet your questions in if you want. <laughs> <laughs> no, can well, I maybe ask, I could, well, can well, I'll ask a question. <laughs> yeah. okay, question Do you think social media is work? Is work? Is work. Is work. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Waste of time, no budget for it, frivolous, or perceived as not being a proper scientist, doing this. Yeah, whether I consider it work is different to whether my colleagues. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Okay, should, should it be work? That is the question. Sorry, I mean, um, I come. Can you introduce oh, yourself? Uh, I'm Brigitte Nehrlich, I work as well, not one works as me at the University of Nottingham. Um, and I'm a quite an old-fashioned person. I sort of I wrote my PhD on a typewriter about history of French linguistics a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Recent, I mean, over the last couple of years or so, I've come into contact with social media. And initially, it was because our school, at a school meeting, told people that we should be out there tweeting, blogging. What? And then I started to blog and tweet, and I find it actually quite enjoyable. So it is fun. But on the other hand, because there is this imperative now that you have to be out there, it's also work. And so I wake up in the morning, get my bowl of muesli, go on the computer, check my Twitter account, and then I go to work. But I don't actually know whether what I do with my muesli bowl and the coffee is work or not work, and it's actually troubling me. I mean, um, I've never used Facebook for personal reasons. So I've never had this sort of... Um, the difference, I, I, yeah, I haven't used it for family reasons or whatever you can use it for. So there is perhaps a difference there, but there is this this issue. And I've recently given a talk to some science students about social media use, and they asked me, oh, uh, "Do you do live tweeting?" And I said, "No, I leave that to Warren." And then they all laugh because they they say, "Ah, yes, that's that's our role, that's our work, which we have to do for you in the future because." Uh, as research fellows, we will have to do the live tweeting. So, um, it is an interesting... <laughs> sorry, I should shut up. But it's an interesting question where where you situate yourself in this 
uh, as a social, as a, as a person or as a worker. <laughs> uh, well, it's like Barry said about it being sociable. So yeah, so it is a blurring. I guess it's the equivalent for an academic of. Well, it's a coffee machine. It's a very big coffee machine. Or the conference dinner or something like that. So, yeah, it is work, but it's a more sociable it kind is of enjoyable work. work. And There's no work in it. Yes. It's no different than networking conferences. It can be also frustrating. Well, it can be. It's a very old joke, but I'm going to make it. Networking is very similar to not working uh, for some people. <laughs> But um, I, 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 would, I would make the point that I, I think that um, the dangers of, uh, of trying to pack uh, hardcore information into 140 characters uh, uh, that Barry highlighted so well are quite, are quite it's difficult terrain. And maybe that's why some of the scientists are producing those fantastic blogs and, and fantastic podcasts. But it, you know, I, I think that people are talking about their work publicly. The, 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 the modern day equivalent of the, of the, of the water cooler, coffee, whatever, publicly, it's just that it's not visible in a particular area that they're looking at. Mm. So, yeah, you know, listen to Ed Hawkins talk about where models fail, failing, listen to the Bromerton pod, listen to him interviewing uh, other scientists at uh, international conferences, finding out the flaws in our understanding and things like that. I think we are. It's just Twitter is, is, has a. I, I do it because I think it's fun. Yeah. But I'm also very careful about uh, engaging in the sorts of things that will be a huge time sink that uh, my colleague on the left here, Sam's in, is, has uh, <coughs> done so fantastically well. I mean, in a positive way. I was just going to say, I mean, I, I think engagement has to be a part of our job as a scientific community. Um, and I suppose what happens, and again this comes back to my plea for more scientists to do it, is that as a community we know we have to do it, Lots of people don't really want to do it. They're worried about, you know, spending enough time on publishing. They're worried about getting it wrong. They're a bit shy. You know, they're worried about repercussions of all kinds. And so, therefore, the people that do want to do it end up doing probably proportionally more than they ought to. And and if we shared the load, then I mean, for example, at the moment, if I if I get a question about near-term climate predictions, I send them to Ed. If I have a question about statistics, I send them to Doug McNeil. You know, if I have a question about uh, polar oceanography, I send them to Mark. But, you know, how many others are there that I can... You know, how many other climate scientists are out on Twitter? You know, it's an increasing number, but we need to be able to kind of, yeah, flood the market, and then we can really just say, all oh, right, for, for paleo stuff, go and talk to that person. For you know, El Nino go and talk to that person, and then each person is talking within their expertise, which means they spend less time going away and reading about the topic that isn't quite their area. Mm. Uh, there's less, sort of, you know, you're less in the firing range if there's thousands of you. So it just comes down to that, I think. And this, com- I was just going to say, this comes back to what your question was about, is it work? And so, kind of doing um, blogging workshops for people, I uh, did one with Begita, for people who want to know about more about blogging, and some of them were pretty sceptical. And saying, you know, where do I find the time? So I think my my impression, this is anecdotal, but my impression is that, um, so there is an expectation, if you like, and you talked about this, about, this about our, uh, you know, a generational thing, if you like, as if this is something we should be doing more of. But it's not really being recognised, perhaps, at institutional level, mm-hmm. because a lot of people don't see it as work. And perhaps a blog is something you just do on a Sunday morning something or you know or doing some <laughs> tweeting on the bus or whatever and it's not seen and but 
there isn't any room in the way that academics are currently kind of uh, rated, if you like, because it's all done on, uh, well, not all done, but still mostly done on journal articles, etc. Um, well, so I mean, it's shifting. It's, 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 it's shifting. It is shifting a bit. Yeah, I, but it, I but, think it's shifting in name only. Actually, I think there's a lot of. Um, I think there's a lot of institutional support in theory. Mm. So I'll get people saying, you know, in research you have to sort of put in your impact stuff and your grant proposals and you get, you get your dean or your head of department <coughs> saying, oh, it's wonderful you do all this engagement. Um, and I have to say my funders and the Cabot Institute of Bristol and, you know, my boss and things are very, um, are very sort of genuinely supportive. But there are plenty of people who sort of say, yes, you know, we should be doing more of this sort of thing and, and it's excellent that you do this sort of thing. And then, and then I, come, I come back to them and sort of say something like, Oh, I got invited to do this quite, you know, quite interesting research thing because of my public engagement. And they say, "Oh, I guess I'll have to, I'll have to reevaluate my opinion about blogging." And I thought, "Well, I thought you were. A, you know, <laughs> I thought you did think it was a good thing, and you've just been telling me." And the same with, yeah, the same with sort of being recognised, um, sort of promoted, and that kind of thing you know, in, in, uh, academically. There's a lot of sort of, yes, it's you know, we should be doing this sort of thing, but um, but on the other hand, we see it as a negative on your CV often. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, mismatch between how people say they, uh, you know, people saying they want public engagement and then actually not it's really seeing it as a good thing because it's hard to measure. We, we keep talking about public engagement, but there's a distinction here. Um, which public? The public or the public that are interested in the subject? Because mm. the public is huge. People are interested in the subject is small. I mean, you see those communities. I mean, mm. and some of those communities you know, they want to throw rocks. You know, they throw rocks at these guys, and some of those guys throw rocks back. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I've seen the pressure put on some people who just talking to people. You know, I, I, Warren showed me his research, his notes, and I know where I am on that. And I initially thought, well, that's really, it's really interesting because I'm actually talking to lots of different people, and I know some of those communities are not there. Typically, the most politicised ones, like South Australia or America, is really they just do not talk. You look at blog they do not follow each other. Mm-hmm. In the UK, it's different because. Politically, there's consensus. So it just people can talk this space. Um, so it's... Don't be naive. The public you're talking to would be interested. And there's an extreme range of opinions there. I think... I don't know if this is my perception or Tamsin's experience is uh, broadly, I mean, sort of exceptions, what your reaction... People's reaction to you in the sceptical community is... Well, you initially get you got dumped on perceived sins of every single design scientist in the world. I think it happens to Judith Curry. Just you know, you, they're all wrong. And then you get also get comments like Paul Matthews and Jeremy Other that you're seen as being a scientist first, rather than a policy advocate, or someone pushing a message. You know, even this, this week or two, we've seen you know, say I think I'm saying, but just because the temperatures of Social force is not a counter to its not yet. It's a almost decade. They're, they're both true. Mm. You know, you know, it's there's a lot of pressure from you know, to on climate science potentially to stay on a, a policy message. That's going to come back to the more senior ranks. Mm. I think. I think the, the point so, about who you talk to. Sorry. Okay. No, that's if you, it's a quick response, Tamsin. Otherwise, I'd like to invite. Um, there's a couple of questions from the audience. Yes, Otherwise, sure. we'll get a bit of an echo chamber <laughs> happening sure. in the front here. Well, I was just going to say, yeah, <laughs> really the, the talking to other people. You know, why do you why do you sort of um, uh, where do you interact with these people? Why do you go to these blogs and skeptical blogs and comment there? Why do you meet up with these people? I def- yeah, I definitely get. get so I'm, I'm not a skeptic. It's a working group, but I might be skeptical of working group two and three. I might be skeptical of policy, but working group one is hardcore science. You know, 
when Copenhagen came around, there was stupid stuff in the media. Six metres of sea level rise, like 21, you know, silly stuff. When my, I've not been interested at all. Okay, what is it? What is it really? And if you told me that I could see projection you know, at a time that's 59 centimetres worse, how it's going to be easy, possibly. I know the stuff in media is rubbish. The, the, the environmentalists, you know, because you know, I went to a friend of mine that actually edited one of the IPCC reports. Mm. You know, is advising the government. Mm-hmm. But the, the point of that is to get some people, you know, the extreme ends, saying, you're a sceptic, you're doing, no, I'm not. And I woke up one morning, suddenly I'm an anti-science rejectionist. So I've got a degree in chemistry, a mm-hmm. um, master's degree in the cybernetics department, and I was modelling, computer modelling, end-body systems. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got a very naive it's a, um, picture on my Twitter feed somewhere, some, an abstract of mine. I think it, computer models can solve everything. Years ago, no, That's all right. Thanks, Barry. But yeah. I'll just invite George. Um, George, did you want to? Uh, my kind of question I mean, is it was, it's kind of a bit off beat, I suppose, in terms of the d- discussion that we've been having, uh, and it comes from somebody who is not a climate uh, scientist. But I'm interested in public understanding of of, uh, of these issues. And I just wondered if kind of just almost stepping outside of the debate around dissemination of information about climate science. And I'm fascinated by those wonderful maps, those network maps, um, and, and the idea that actually there was a lot of overlap, there's a lot of a meeting place. And I just wondered whether that meeting place is in a shared understanding of, or at least working with the uncertainties and ambiguities of climate change science mm-hmm. and in actual what we're dealing with is actually a political issue between uh, people who are interested in small government people who are sceptic of expertise on the one hand mm-hmm. and people take a much more social model on the other and that what's happening is that these political differences are being refracted and reflected through a particular scientific issue I've got a friend who works on the bible and she believes, she's a philologist, if you could get certainty in the words of the Bible, everybody would believe. And it's almost as if we're thinking that here. If we could get certainty in science, everybody would understand. But it's not as simple as that, because it's about belief, and it's about political positioning. Um, well, I, I, uh, yeah, I'm sure you've got something to say about that. I will, I will, um, so, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I do agree with that uh, up to a point. Um, so, I mean, yeah, so, certainly in some... So, I don't think you can generalise, basically. So, there are certainly some people, clearly, on uh, the climate sceptic side oh, who, yeah. are, who are avowed uh, libertarians, for example. And um, you could similarly say that climate change has migrated, if you like, well, whether climate change has migrated or whether politics has migrated, but it's become a more left-wing issue. I mean, it's certainly the case in America, obviously. It's a polarised left-right issue. Um, <coughs> I think that um, what I didn't, sh- uh, one of the things I didn't show, if it, um, when we looked at the hashtags, I mean, this may seem obvious, but uh, I think pretty much the most um, uh, populated group of hashtags are ones about science. So there is a share, and so you hear uh, kind of people, particularly on the fringes of both sides, uh, throwing around uh, like real science and pseudoscience, you know. Oh, my side is real science, the other side is pseudoscience or anti-science. Now, without wanting to comment on who's right and who's wrong, what that does demonstrate is that they both share an interest in science. Okay? 
and I think you know, Barry, you describe yourself as a defender of, yeah, I, a defender of science before. So, and um, I used, I used to say a lot of times thinking about how you know wanting to get it right, if you like, wanting to get the science right. And part of this is kind of discussing these things online. Um, but perhaps where that tension comes in, like you said, if you could just agree on one meaning, is maybe you know, previously, 40, 50 years ago, it was based around what was in journal articles. You know, you published a journal article, it went into the paper, it went onto the library, and it was a bit like a biblical screed to some extent, to some extent you know. And perhaps a different peer review processes, but it was a similar, uh, similar idea. Um, whereas now, you've got this kind of extended peer review, post-normal science, whatever you want to call it, but this is, things are constantly under review online. And this is very recent. You know, this is hard to imagine, but when the IPCC started, none of this was, none of this was happening. You know, again, you just published a screen and it, was, and it was there. In that last 20 years or so, all this stuff has emerged very quickly. So, um, yeah, values are part of it, but um, it's definitely not the whole story. There was some research <coughs> recently, that the media shaman, LSE? Yeah. And I think I it, but she basically found that there were three major, say, sceptic blogs, and they were basically all about the science. That's what's being discussed. Yeah. Um, again, I think I said it's more science than sort of correcting media about the science. There wouldn't be any sceptics. But again, they might not the risk, I think, perceive that there will be enough message. You know, it's not scary enough, it's uncertain enough. And it's 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 bizarre, inconvenient tweet is the title of this thing. I mean last year there's a a news story that hit the BBC on the the Dame Shipman on the tonight phone or something, talking about this metal this decadal forecast graph that Roger Harbin spoken today and it suggests twenty years pause where previously beyond ten was not gonna happen or this year is supposed to be 0.3 degrees above the average. It's massive warming predicted. That's gone. You know, the old graph is like this. The new one's like this. And it hit the blogs really bad manner because the Met Office put it on December 24th and changed it and it to anybody. Uh, the, the, I saw environmental journalists just laughing at the Met Office. You know, good day to bury good news. You know, it, it was really funny. It's Ben Jackson, Ben Webster saying, Vicky Pope saying, or that the scientists that put it up just in the year target didn't think. And he said, who is this scientist that does not think it might be important? You know, he's actually laughing. Um, but then it's already got legs, and suddenly, or the old graph is 0.53 above its projection. Now it's 0.42. Who are these stupid sceptics saying there's no global warming on the Tonight programme? I think Tonight programme. Graphic on the wall. Up arrow, plus 42. Plus 0.42 degrees. By 2017. Problem was... That's from the baseline average. It means about the same as now. So no one picked up <coughs> what they were saying in that graphic and what's being talked about in media and Guardian headlines picked up the BBC stories loosely worded you know, a couple of first sentences. The rest of the story actually explained it in detail. But the message got out that effectively there's a much warming in the next five years since you know, since industrial half the industrial times, you know, point eight degrees in the last hundred and fifty years. And somehow you have a graphic, 0.4 in 5. That is horribly, totally wrong. You know, the, the actual Met Office webpage from the baseline average, the graph itself, it's flat. So it went horribly horrible. I, I tried to tweet to people, like, the guy, Leo Hickman, this is wrong, you know. BBC got it wrong. Okay. Yeah. I think, I think um, <coughs> and perhaps it's a generational yeah. thing, but I do find quite often that institutions and, and um, 
people in, sort of in charge of institutions and, and more senior scientists um, often don't realise how quickly um, errors in communication can go viral around the world. And I've had some experience of this. Um, so in my project, um, Ice to See, we had a press conference on the project results last May, um, which was reported on, uh, but the, the people involved um, weren't able to put the report that was being uh, reported on online until the next day. And they didn't realise how long 12 hours is yes. in this world. And so there was all this, well, well what paper is this from? And where, this? Where, can we get, where can we read the real science that's behind this and not this press report? You know, you're doing science by press release. Yeah. And, and I was like, we need to get this up right now because we're creating a story that doesn't exist yeah. um, by not appreciating how, quick, how yes. quickly these things blow up um, and how bad it can look to not match what you're saying with you know, the numbers and the detail. Um, so I think, I mean, hopefully that's changing. I mean, there, there are other examples I can think of, but time zones. So. Yeah, and, I, and and people who aren't, who don't have their fingers in the online world, because anyone watching the webcast is full and everyone tweeting and stuff. You know, we are in this world and we care about it, but plenty of people don't, and their words can get can go around the world like wildfire. I agree. I mean, I think I think it comes down to thinking more strategically about what we think publication is and actually timing that in a way that has a strategy behind it. So it can't just be about, oh, I've got my paper published in X, Y, or Z. Now, there are opportunities, in a way, to have these kind of debates. So having some kind of strategy around it, it comes back to, you know, you you start with the question, is it work, should it be work? And then you say, okay, where are the support mechanisms for doing that? Are you recognised for this kind of work? But actually, where's the strategy behind this that says, this is an important piece of research, therefore... It shouldn't just be a publication which goes on your CV. It has to be more than that. Yeah, I just, um, what I mentioned earlier, you used the word measurement earlier on, and a lot of this conversation is about the impact of the tweeting activity. And I'm just curious to know whether there is any research on what, what people's thoughts are about what the impact is. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of people are engaged. There are many, as, uh, as Barry said earlier on, there are many different publics that one could segment the public into uh, and I'm wondering do we really understand what the impacts of this tweeting is in those different areas and are we in a position to refine this I'm actually kind of amused but there's a certain irony that behind Mark on this post, I don't know whether this is deliberate, I'm sure it isn't there's an interesting quote, we are setting off in the 21st century on a perilous journey into an uncharted wilderness with the conceptual tools and equipment available to 19th century explorers <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, do we know exactly what we're doing, what the impact of what we're doing is? Any suggestions? Yeah. Well, I'm uh, going to follow up on both of those points. Rick, Rick spoke about things not just being uh, published, published science and, and done. Well, there's a very recent example of a high-impact paper, and no doubt Barry will know the name, but I'm... Uh, uh, my memory is not as good as good as his, but it was about um, the change in uh, rainfall expected over the next uh, coming century, um, and it had used various sorts of models. And it was published in a high-impact journal. I think it was Science or Nature, one of those. And the authors had released an entire website dedicated to the paper. And it was only half a dozen pages on the website, but it listed all the team, explained in great details what regional projections were of rainfall for the, uh, uh, the climate. So sort of a super version of the, uh, the, the example I pointed out with uh, Bethan Davis. Um, and on Twitter, Met Office scientists pointed out, hang on, 
some of this stuff has been done, you know, a few years ago. And within a week, the, the, the team in the States that had worked on it had acknowledged that and accepted that they needed to correct what they had done and added a correction to the website. So the pace of things has gone then from being months down to literally a week. But they were ready with the website to explain and to provide this sort of context so that people couldn't willfully or you know, accidentally to, to misinterpret the sorts of things that were being spoken about in the paper. So again, I would just, being an optimist, I would say people are trying. You don't want your work to be misunderstood. You want to do a great job. Pavati. I'm Pavati Raghuram, Open, um, Open University uh, Director of Open Space. I wanted to ask you about the generative capacity, actually, which is just directly following on from that, which is the, which is you know, there's that engagement thing, which is about research, which is done, and then and then you you are you know engaging the public. But what about the fact that the public actually influences your research and and not in the context of you know just looking at the tweets, but what's the feedback mechanism into and how does that play out into this whole notion of you know uh, engagement? Because uh, because there is a generative capacity of all this information flows, which is perhaps sort of subdued in the version of engagement, which is about you know, giving out to other people. So I'd like to hear from people on what, what you think about the generative um, Yeah, there's definitely a feedback. Um, I mean, I talked about... Um, feed in, I think. Sorry. Yes, you were talking more about the feed in rather than feedback. Well, the research. Yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> uh, I mean, I talked about open access research, and I have to be um, a bit careful where I try to publish as an early researcher, early career researcher. I also have to go for the uh, big name, not so open access journals, should we say, uh, but wherever I can, I publish open access. But even on the, the work as itself, um, certainly I kind of. Uh, there's kind of in the back of my mind, you know, can I can I defend this to absolutely everyone I talk to? You know, can I stand by this to everyone I, I talk to um, and and give them my code if they want it? Uh, you know, I switch to open source code. Um, it for me as an early career researcher, it can't so much affect the direction of research because I'm a little bit beholden to the projects I work on. But um, certainly, you know, it's kind of on, on my shoulder. Is that you know, I'm not. I, I feel like I'm trying to communicate. Okay, so maybe I'm not given such a good answer. Maybe someone else can can give a more coherent uh, answer. Can I, I, I would say, what, what, is the, what is the potential for coming out of this workshop that you actually have generated some research questions with Twitter users, which you can then put together in a research question? And it answers your question, what's the impact of social media on research? It's not, it's not Twitter in isolation. You know, it's, it's not Twitter. It's not Twitter. You link to a blog. You can explain. You can expand. Ed Hawking, for example, he finds that statisticians popping up that little Twitter community discussing this particular topic. Yeah. His graphic, you know, it, it appeared at a US Senate, I believe. It appeared in Economist. Um, so it's, it's not just a thing. It's a whole. It's a whole you know, it's a meeting here. Twitter is not just Twitter. You know, I wouldn't be here before Twitter. We wouldn't have met before Twitter. Yeah. It's, it's, and I went on Twitter because I okay, get away from those echo chambers. You know, I've been called all sorts of names on so-called skeptic blogs. You know, go and hang out with your climate scientists now, makes STFU, and the blog owners had to delete all the abuses comments coming my way. So I wasn't skeptical enough. Mm-hmm. Or we saw, say, the BBC Richard Black is the skeptic community. There is a, a lump mass called that. But the BBC is, and Richard Black particularly, was perceived as an environment, an activist. And I'm sure he perceived it completely differently. But there is the, the American um, climate progress block, which is quite a political mm. side of the debate. 
And there was like a piece on them attacking the BBC for not being sceptical enough for something he'd written. And Richard wrote something about when warmists attack. And they actually published his email address and got tons of abuse. And I, you know, I've, you know, I've been commenting on Richard's book for a while. And, you know, as sceptic as suppose, but you know, I go and comment on that kind of progress blog and get all my comments deleted for defending Richard. You know, it's, it's, it's just mad. It is really interesting yeah. that you talked about that, but moderation. Is, is another aspect of yeah. what, you know, Thank you. That was a really good, really good question. I, think. Um, I can't, so this is kind of a question I've been thinking about mulling over. You know, has there ever been any research done directly as a result of a climate well, member of the public um, thinking they've found a flaw, you know? And I can't, I can't, I'm not aware of any. I mean, the only thing... I found a flaw on paper, Yeah, I mean, I suppose a famous one that kind of has arisen out of, supposedly out of a kind of a climate-sceptic viewpoint would be the kind of the Berkeley um, temperature reconstruction, which was, which was um, ostensibly kind of, you know, was certainly funded by some people. Would, would that's, I think that's a distraction. Yeah, but, so, but, but this, I mean, broadly speaking, I don't think there's been any kind of generative impact perhaps in the terms of research direction as far as I'm aware but as you say a lot of it is is kind of the, the feedback the feedback is, well yeah in terms of process yeah um, and then the other thing I was going to say was about sort of measuring so you're asking about you know how do you measure this impact? so I mean you, yeah I mean you could try and do that I mean I don't know how you would measure the impact particularly even in as you said climate change which is a kind of a hot topic and there are all these other topics in science which would kill for some of the same kind of attention but if so I'd turn it around and say that if you if if Tamsin was you know uh, if you were being uh, managed partly on how many conversational connections you made with people in the public or how many blog posts you wrote etc um, and they were found not to have any impact then would that be a reason not to do it um, and I would argue uh, no, because this sort of stuff is hard to measure and there should be probably a deeper reason for doing it than just saying it has impact A or impact B. Now, I know in the real world that we do have to measure this stuff, but I think um, things like, um, I mean, okay, peer review is another you know, intrinsic part of science, and that really isn't measured that well at the moment. And you can argue that it needs to be measured and taken account of more. But, but um, it's, you know, I'd say this kind of extended peer review, if you like to use vernacular, is, um, is just as important. Can I quickly say, yeah. I, mean, I, think, I think online stuff is a lot easier to quantify than other types of engagement. Mm. You know, I mean, the, the difference between talking to kids at school, I mean, I suppose you can count with children, but, you know, the, the, the clicking links, the alt metrics and things is actually more measurable than a lot of other, other ways you can talk to people. Mm. Mm. So, can I just go back to that? When I talk about impact, I mean, it's obviously, well, not obviously, but it, it may well be relatively easy, particularly in an online, online environment, to, to quantify the number of people or entities that you are reaching. Mm, but, not, okay, but that's not necessarily the same as the impact you're having out in society absolutely. in general terms, whether it's a one-way traffic or indeed whether it's reflexive, uh, which is probably more interesting um, uh, question. Yeah. So when I was using the word impact, I was talking not so much in terms of you know, how many people are, you, are we reaching with blogs? But actually, 
what difference is it making socially? Is it reducing the number of sceptics? Is it changing people's views? Yes, How do policymakers feel about it? I mean, are they using it as a, as a reference source, um, you know, whether they're civil servants or politicians? I mean, all these sorts of questions about, you know, why bother? Because ultimately, there's a lot of effort going into this, and if it actually has no impact in that vernacular sense, then you have to wonder, well, why bother? Because you could use your time more usefully. Uh, yeah, Martin Reynolds from New York University. I'm actually part of the Applied Systems Thinking in Practice uh, group. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think this, this question about measurement is so key to, to, to what we're talking about today. And um, I, I get a bit uneasy with the sort of notions of, of uh, you know, Wanting scientists to occupy the blogosphere, the blogosphere and have more tweets or whatever, simply uh, providing, you know, having a space to provide more of their information actually fills me with fear that you're going to get lots of these echo chambers, if you like, um, with, with lots of people just simply talking with each other. Um, and I think it's the, it's the quality of the engagement which is the key thing. And I think it's a great challenge for us as academics. We had a, a very good um, talk uh, on Monday, which I think was entitled Rebooting Academia. And we talked about this, this kind of notion of, of public engagement with science. How is it that as academics we can formulate um, different types of measurements other than what we have institutionalised at the moment, peer reviews and number of articles, indeed the metrics of the number of blogs or whatever which could be uh, put up, how can we actually provide measurements of an engagement which shows that there is disruption amongst academics in the way in which we are thinking about our stuff? And so, yeah, one sort of measurement for that would be the type of research questions that may be generated uh, from us in our response to public engagement. But I think there are other uh, forms of measurements as well. And I think it's, 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 a, it's a responsibility, if you like, for us as academics to, to engage with that. Uh, a quick response to that. I think I uh, totally agree with <coughs> the way things are changing and the pace of things. But just in a decade now, we've gone into a world where, uh, during the duration of this meeting, I could have downloaded uh, the entire data set from all of the measurements ever collected in the world's oceans and start making data plots and blog about them. And some people in the climate community, general public, are doing that. And that's where it comes comes back round earlier when you were talking about, um, you know, is it work or is it play? It, it, the, the, the examples I've given are all things that are linked to uh, people's research aims, but when you're having to respond to things that are outside of your work, then that's time pulling you away from things. And that's, so that's a completely different sphere, and that's the thing we've got to address, because it's very easy to uh, misinterpret the sorts of data that you can download quickly online. Very easy. Do you not see the, this engagement as a good thing? One problem with, say, academia is echo chains within academia. You get smaller and smaller specialist niches of science. You know, I think you know, across you know, Ed Hawking's book, you know, he's talking with a statistician, and we're talking this all for you, and you, there's a lot more broader picture um, going on. 
And when you say engage with the public, yeah. is it engaging? Is it more about engaging with academia? You talk about really science. You know, science, lots of science happens outside of academia as well. Yeah. Are you really talking about you know, academia and not science of science? Again, a lot of science gets into the policy, politics with science. Sometimes the science is a proxy for a wider debate. I mean, an example might be think of climate is GM. You know, there's an inconvenient tweet to the to GM, to public scientists a while back was the um, Take the Flower Back campaign. Was it? Yeah. And you had you know, environmentalists going to rip up their crop, you know, their research. And you, you, know, you can see the activists tweeting about corporations, this, this, this. And, and eventually the, the scientists said, don't rip up my research. I'm this you know, young researcher, I'm a public servant, this is not a corporation, this is a public good. And it came to a, a sort of a Twitter standoff. And all these environmentalists turned up, and all these scientists turned up, and there was the public. You know, and you know, the lead, the, the environmental leaders were now in a bit of an uncomfortable position for anti-science, public research, you know. And it's it's a very, you know, it's, it, it's totally good or bad. You know, it's, it has positive benefits. I think your point yeah. you often make around yeah. research as well, Tamsin, is about um, so this idea about measuring a, dis- a disruption index. So I'm not yeah. a, a fantastic idea. Um, but um, so it's about uh, a conversation. So um, you know, there's been you don't hear it so much nowadays. But climate communication or science science communication is obviously a, a kind of a well worn uh, idea now. And the climate communication came out of that and. Whether or not it was intended to be the case, it's often been perce- perceived as being more broadcasting than yeah, communication, yeah. which is kind of what you were saying, just kind of you know filling, colonising this space with more and more science, if you like. Um, and yeah, I think really, if really the best way to engage people, if that's what you want to do, and get them interested in what you're doing for whatever reason, whether you think because it has wider social impacts, or whether you want to attract more people to do. You know, quite instrumental thing about attracting more people to do courses, perhaps in your in your area or whatever, is to engage people and have a discussion with them. And but having a discussion with someone, what you have to realise is that it's not about changing that person's mind. You might be able to come to uh, an understanding about the other person's view, um, but um, you will not agree with them about everything, no matter how wild you may think some of that person's um, views are. But if you have a discussion rather than broadcasting from the ivory tower, if you like, then um, you're going to get um, certainly a greater level of respect, if not agreement. Brigitte, did you want to come back in? Yeah, I want to come back to the quantification issue. Um, I mean, okay, we can now quantify all sorts of things. And again, when I started to blog and tweet, it, it was because I enjoyed it. And I, I, I write my blogs mainly because I enjoy writing them rather than because I want them to mm. be read, which is a bit silly to say, but um, it's. But I'm sort of looking over the horizon and I'm thinking, okay, when I retire in a few years' time, then we will not only be assessed on um, impact factors and uh, citations, we will be assessed on how many blogs we've written, how many times I have quoted, how many comments we get, and all, so there will be all sorts of measurements creeping in to the sphere which I, at the moment, still regard as my playing field. I mean, my where I have autonomy. So the, the only place where I feel safe and autonomous in my academic work is in the blogging and tweeting because it's sort of a, uh, something which is not yet sort of monitored all the time and quantified and measured. And although that is 
when we had to write impact case studies for mm. the last ref, this was, I was sort of pushed and pushed. Count your stuff and see where, where, where you place it. And I sort of resisted this almost, which was not regarded as being very good. But, um, so yeah, so there is a, I have a sort of, a really, t- a ten- a see a tension emerging in my personal way of academic working which sort of, I think, <coughs> has to be resolved at some point, but I'm not, I'm not totally sure how. Um, I, th- I think that's, the, that's the big, one of the biggest issues we face at the moment. So if you do your study, and you either find that you know, working in this digital, digital space has a big impact, can you imagine if you, you publish that? I mean, universities around the UK certainly are writing their post-rest strategies all and go, right then. that's what we're all doing for the next five years and then we'll collect the evidence and off we go alternatively there's no impact it's all limited therefore that's no longer part of your job you do that in your spare time if you want to but you you concentrate on core tasks so that's kind of where we're at the minute I think and that evidence doesn't exist but that's what people are working on now I think but I also think that there's, there's something debilitating about this work-play divide. I mean, what's yeah. wrong with having enjoyable work, actually? Exactly. Yes, no, that's true. Right. But it, it becomes less enjoyable, but yeah. it's measured, I think. That's my, my fear. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Deep down, we're all Puritans at heart. If you're enjoying it, it can't be good to do. And talking about working in different areas of space, um, I used the uh, picture on the left there, Ed Hawking, uh, the Climate Lab book, <coughs> part of uh, the range of... Uh, IPCC model uh, predictions, and it made I made a point that it made all the national newspapers, and it made quite a big fuss online. <coughs> and about five or six months after that happened, there was a paper, an academic paper published in the journal Geophysical Research Letters, and it had a figure remarkably similar to that. And I tweeted Ed and said, "Hey, you see this?" And he just, I mean, my interpretation is he shrugged his shoulders online, but he said it was so obvious someone was bound to do it anyway. That's the way the field is moving. But he wasn't afraid, even before publication, to get that stuff out there because yeah. he thought, hey, look, this is really interesting. Trying to provoke so a comment from other people to think about it. He didn't realise that it would be quite so publicly uh, misinterpreted, willfully or not. Sorry, Tim. I can quickly comment on that. I mean, I think people are nervous about putting preliminary results on blogs. I mean, there are, there are, yes, journals, there are journal guidelines on this, and actually, yes. often you can do a lot more than you think. But also, another way that I kind of have got around it in the past is to blog about uh, method but not results yeah um, and, and then you get then and that's of course the way that medicine is going with um, you know get it, making sure that everything's published that you know all the studies that are planned are published so you don't get a, a bias uh, towards positive results um, if you if you if you get that kind of uh, peer review process going during the, the methods process and actually it may, may even help you write a better paper in that one just quickly coming back. Just to mention that graph, and since then, as the uh, Royal Society of Climate Effective Townsend was there, sort of live tweeting. And one thing got picked up there, which was interesting, um, we have the, is it Julius, the Met Office suggesting, is a scientist talking about scientists, so well worth listening to. All the arguments, you know, this uncertainty, what's this, what's that, all the aerosols in this, what's that, there's lots of fierce discussion going on there. And it's a, that's seven or eight speakers, the QA sessions are just fascinating. It's a lot of what's talked about in the skeptical community, which is being talked about there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had you know, the head of the men's office saying, well, what if, suggesting that the, the pause in you know, service technology might continue for 30 years, mm-hmm. you know, due to the PDO and its possibility of course, some of the warming, some of the warming in the 1890s. 
And well, how would that graph look in ten years if it sort of flatlines? You know, and we would be outside some of those ranges, and we would be. I mean, I know the modelers are looking at the boards because I could go back to Minhog's press releases that talk about it. You know, from seven five or six years ago, they're predicting 0.3 degrees and next year's often hottest. But in that paper, talking about ports, you know, it was an interest to them. Um, and now it's a few years on, you know, the forecast a bit flattening by it. So I think a lot of so the sceptical community, what were they talking about? Because the scientists are talking about it. But then you get hammered by some of those people throwing rocks for talking about the science. Mm. Yeah. Okay, thanks, Barry. Another I want to go back to something that's new from the Open University, from the ecosystems. Um, I want to go back to something Tamsin raised, which is this <coughs> split in the science community between scientists who think everything they say should be objective and then they can't be criticised, which I think is more your approach, and scientists who think they've found something really important, they want to save the world, and they must express the um, how important that is in an emotive, communicative way to the, to the public. And there, there's a bit of a split going on there. And I'm quite... Um, I don't feel I can take Tam's interview because I don't really see my... I work more on the boundaries, so I work with economists and I do um, interdisciplinary work that actually attempts to define policies using coupled climate, economic-type viewpoints. So we're explicitly trying to bridge those gaps. And I'm, tr- I'm quite... It, having worked in a German-speaking country as well in the in German-speaking part of Switzerland. I'm quite interested in the fact that um, Germany, which has made uh, extraordinarily impressive uh, um, progress in the energy vendor and um, renewables, and Switzerland, which is obviously a very... Um, has a much less advocative, dialectic kind of government is a country that doesn't have the word science, right? So in, in one of the, one of the um, most respected German-speaking papers, there's, there's, not a, there's not a page of science, there's a page of Wissenschaft. You know, so they don't have this, they don't have C.P. Snow's split between the two cultures. They just talk about Wissenschaft, which is more like knowledge or research. So they combine those two cultures. So I'm quite interested in how much you think, how much the panel thinks, uh, the problems that we have in Britain, say, maybe America, are related to the English language and to C.P. Snow's two cultures split. And if we understood as scientists more, um, and if we actually worked more with how um, how people's values, how people's emotions actually had meaning for the... Um, for producing their value systems and how those fed in in a in a more mechanistic way to what actually happens and what the decision makers do, um, we'll be better off. It's a nice, easy question. Yeah, this is quite a vexed uh, issue, I think, um, and this kind of. Uh, idea that you hear a lot about activists. So a difference between activist scientists and objective scientists. Um, and yeah, I think this is a cultural issue because um, it's very hard to um, 
I personally think, I don't know, Barry might not agree, but I think it's very hard to make that distinction, really, for precisely what you said, because, you know, you could start off in a stereotypical way as an objective scientist, make a discovery of some description, and think this is really, you know, an important thing. I mean, Albert Einstein was... Know, pretty active in the wider world, as we all know, and he's probably the most respected scientist, um, one of the ones has ever been. So um, it isn't very easy to um, make that distinction. However, having said that, I think um, Tamsin's um, approach, not to say that you've kind of, I don't know, the way you, you've been quite careful about kind of the language you, you've used, I would say, um, was completely, uh, I think, personally, completely justified within this sphere, because it had become polarised. So I don't think there's any um, single way of doing it, but I do completely agree that the notion of the... Well, it's what you mean by objective, because science rests on objectivity to some description, but um, disentangling that from values is is, is, um, uh, important, but also uh, tricky. I mean, science is objective, but the people doing it, doing science, practising science, are people... Yeah. They're not this, they don't put on this science hat and become this objective person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the easiest person to fall is yourself, as any scientist, yeah, or any of these. And, it's, uh, and that seems to be recognised. You might perceive your objective, but I mean, bring your own values and brains to it. You can't just say I'm a scientist and public these values will not yeah. reflect on your own. Now, that's why Chris Rapley speak about that. Um, you know, you it makes you've got to reflect back on yourself. For the same sort of what would it take for you to believe in climate science? And is that actually bounced back right at you? Or what would it take you to be wrong? Where is your mind? It's, it's, it's not a, a one-way thing. Can I do yeah. I mean, a, a, a really influential um, <coughs> friendship for me in the past was, um, he's still a friend of mine, um, is a, an American evangelical Christian Republican voting, an extremely conservative, extremely religious person who's a very, very dear friend of mine. And our conversations about uh, what we believe and, and sort of comfort with having completely different values and still being able to have an interesting and quite productive conversation and, and sort of persuade each other on a couple of points um, is, I think, one of the main reasons why I feel comfortable in talking to people with completely different values and not trying to um, change their values but just have a conversation about um, science and the bigger picture, but while being aware that they have different values and not getting angry about it. Uh, well, yeah, my sister-in-law is a Green Party parliamentary candidate. That wasn't in the long time ago. Yeah. But on the Times, it's one of those kind of uh, in the movement, very, very nice person. So it's, it's a cliches of cliches for people to throw rocks at each other. Mm. Um, I think well, one thing about scientists getting up and engaging is the more that do it, those extreme voices would just be further and further at the edge. You know, people throwing rocks at scientists, people saying not to talk to people, you know, because there's so, you know, if I, I'm actually aware, if I, if I say that's a good idea in terms of the Warren and Mark, that's an example of why they're wrong. You know, that's, that's been pointed out into the Twitter feeds. Mm-hmm. But it's so polarised. I mean, I'm going back to heroes and villains. And I'm quite late to debate. I missed an inconvenient truth. I've got a you know, third child, three children under four at the time. It's not a time to be noticing. IPCC, Jan, uh, November 2009. What's that got? It's the you know, Police Complaints Commission got to do with it. You know, I was no, Michael Mann, he's a film director for Heat. And he did my revise. I have no, no clue. 
So I'm going back, you know, I'm not at the history, there's so much baggage there. There's accounts that are really just not going to talk. Um, I mean, the BBC's husband's a very moralist, but the problem with the penalisation, the more people talk and just civil to each other, that will solve. I'm going to quote someone, a journalist, at the showing of the inconvenient truth, and he challenged uh, Mr. Gore about a, a fact, you know, a scientific fact, and Mr. Gore responded afterwards saying, yes, actually, that was incorrect. Um, but after the interview, this is live, but after the interview, he and his assistant, I'm quoting from the BBC website, stood over me shouting that my questions have been scurrilous and implying that I'm some sort of climate sceptic traitor. And that was Roger Howard then, who got the those quite well. Um, so if it's that polarised, you know, it, it's going to be, you've got to break the polarisation first, and that's people talking. Okay. So that's why, you know, I'm, I've been critical of BBC Roger Back, but also, you know, recognise the sincerity there. It's not these heroes and villains. Mm. I think perhaps on that nice positive note from Barry about deconstructing our heroes and villains, we might draw today's proceedings to a close. Um, please, please join me in thanking our five palace. to continue the discussion. I think there's still some tea and coffee left at the back of the room. So. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.